sitting here with Jimmy Boudreaux, drummer, who I know through Mel Brown, but I know that he's much more than just a drummer that used to play with Mel Brown. Not really. No? <laughs> <laughs> I always think of you as, as Mel's drummer, but I don't know how you think of yourself, because I get the feeling that I think of you as a blues drummer, but right. I get the feeling that you're more of a country drummer than a blues drummer. Is that um, correct? It's about 50-50. When the, actually the same month that Mel approached me to be his regular drummer, I started with another group that was like a cover, a country cover band. And shortly thereafter, I auditioned for George Fox, who's a famous Canadian country guy at right. the time. So we're talking 20, well, 1993, 1994, right in there. And it was the same month I started with these two bands. So the day that I started with Mel, I had like one foot in the blues world and one foot in the country world. Wow. And shortly thereafter, it wasn't just top 40 country with a local band at a local bar. It became touring Canada with one of the you know Canadian country touring acts, right. George Fox. Yeah, an icon in some ways. Canadian oh, yeah, country, absolutely. Yeah. He's yeah. a bit of Canadiana because at that time, uh, Canadian country music didn't have that many touring artists. You know, Carol Baker and George were about it. Anne Murray was um, on the way. She was getting ready to retire, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot going on. It's grown a lot since, and that's after George, you know, one thing led to another, and I still tour uh, with various Canadian country acts, and I seem to be uh, uh, known as one of these guys that if you're in a jam and you need somebody to do one or two shows because your regular guy can't do it, I get a lot of those calls. And you were nominated for the Canadian Country Music Awards, right? Yeah. Um, we The band I'm in right now called the Western Swing Authority was nominated for group, Roots Group of the Year. Uh, it's kind of a nostalgia band, right? It's a Texas swing band. Right. So it's not like mainstream country by any means. So that's uh, in a category called Roots. And uh, we were nominated for Roots Group of the Year the last two years. And uh, and I was nominated for Drummer of the Year this year by the CCMA. First time for that. That's pretty impressive. That was neat. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back. Tell me how you got into music. Um, my brother marched in a drum corps in Sudbury. So a uh, drum corps is like a marching band with specialized instruments. Uh, there's no woodwinds or trombones. It's uh, basically a marching brass band with a drum section. And um, so I marched in drum corps, the Blue Saints in Sudbury from the time I was 10, so 1972 until uh, 1978 or 79. And um, that led me for some reason I wanted to be a uh, symphonic drummer I wanted to I like I wanted to play in the Berlin Philharmonic I had <laughs> I don't I have no idea why uh, <laughs> but I had pictures of um, their conductor on my bedroom wall when I was like 16 I just said I want to be I don't know what I don't know what it was about them but um, I must have seen them on TV or something or, so I don't know. what kind of music were you into at at that, at that time? Yeah. Um, well, it's really funny because around that time, my brother was taking classical guitar. My brother, Tom, was a big influence because he got me started in marching band. And then he also played classical guitar. So he was listening to a lot of Bach and things and lifting classical guitar by ear by playing on records. You know, amazing, <laughs> wow. really. Yeah. Uh, so he had um, he had some Deutsche gramophone recordings, and that's probably where I got onto the Berlin Philharmonic. Right. And, uh, and if and, you're going to become... A 
symphonic drummer. I mean, oh, yeah. he could do Might a lot well. worse than the yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know. <laughs> so um, then, so I joined um, a local symphony in Sudbury. It was kind of a. It had a professional core, a small professional core of musicians, and then uh, was just amateurs. We filled out the orchestra, and um, I was going along fine until um, <laughs> I was going along fine until my sister uh, left a record out on the coffee table, and it was uh, Oscar Peterson's Night Train, and I was like, "Hey, what's this?" You know, <laughs> and she goes, uh, "It's a record I got. I belong to the Record of the Month Club. Remember them? Yeah, yeah remember that." Yeah. So was one of those that came right and I said oh can I hear it and she put it on and I was just completely that was my aha moment and I was like oh I think I don't want to play in a symphony anymore I think I need to you know listen to some jazz <laughs> so um I asked my my conductor um so is there any training at this point is this no it's just high school I'm okay. in high school Totally uh, self-taught through listening to records. And same, same thing when you're playing with the orchestra. Yes. In the marching band. Yeah, I just relied on my rudimental, what I learned from what they call rudimental drumming. Um, in, in drum speak, there's uh, the 13 essential rudiments. And basically the language of snare drumming or in parade drumming is based on a combination of these 13 essential rudiments is laid down by um, NARD, which is national something, something of drumming. <laughs> Listen, I used to play the drums in grade nine. Okay. I didn't even know there was 13 rudiments. Okay, there you go. Well, they've since adopted the Swiss uh, rudiments now. So there's, I don't know, there's like 36 or 32 or whatever. But anyways, it's changed. Um so no, I just, when I was in the symphony, I was just relying on the marching band experience that I learned. And, and was rock music or pop music ever around you? Yeah, or you yeah. I had, oh that? yeah. Um, I never listened to, I never liked mainstream, again, because of my brother Tom. He had a weird sense of uh, musical taste. He was listening to Italian rock bands and all these imports and stuff. And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he had, um, he had a, a George Benson record that I really dug. Uh, so that turned me again was like everything was kind of steering me towards jazz so around the time that I found out about Oscar Peterson my brother's listening to George Benson and um, and then I talked to my symphony um, my conductor and uh, there was starting to be some conflicts between symphony rehearsals and um, playing in the jazz big band at high school and, um, you know, he was like, what's going on? How come you're missing all these, you know? And I'm like, well, we got big band after school in high school, you know? And um, he's like, well, you can't play both. And if you tell a teenager you can't do something, mm -hmm. then he's going to just, you know, he's going to rebel. And so I'm like, okay, screw you. I'm dropping the symphony stuff and I'm going to play jazz. Cool. Decision made. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. You know? What do you think it was about jazz that attracted you? I have no idea. None. I, I just know I went home. I literally went home with a, um, I borrowed my sister's record, which I still have. She never got back. <laughs> and I gave away all of my records. And they were like Trooper, Donna Summer. Uh, you know, I gave away all of my pop, <laughs> pop music uh, collection. And um, I started with 
But there was no, you didn't want to play for Donna Summers or... No, 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 there was none of that, no, no. Okay. Um, also, at the same time, though, I did discover I, I was listening to some stuff other than jazz. You know, this sounds so... I'm, I'm making it sound like it was such an easy primary thing. You know, I went from doing this and this is all I listened to. It wasn't like that. It was still a teenager and still influenced by modern dance music. So... Um, although I gave away all the records I owned at that time, I still started collecting records and they weren't all jazz records, but they were primarily black music. Like that was, mm -hmm. a, I found, I soon discovered that mm, all of my musical heroes were black. There was a certain mysteriousness about why, like, why are all these guys so good? What is it? Do you, you know, mm -hmm. do you have to be black to sound so well? <laughs> like, I didn't know what it was, right? right. It was like, it was so, um, I guess it's, a uh, politically incorrect to be speaking like this but that's really it's it's the opposite of um, racism it's like nothing but respect you know right. for some reason all my heroes were black and they all played amazingly well and they were a big influence so I discovered George Benson and Earth Wind and Fire and um, you know it just went on then, so you went to Humber was that for music yep mm -hmm. okay so at this point, you've already decided that you want to pursue music as a full-time... I, I knew that when I was about 15. In the marching band? In the marching band, in the, in the symphony. I knew I was going to make a living somehow in the music industry, yeah. Wow. So it was just, that was easy for me. I never had one of those aha moments other than, like, not about a career. It was like the direction my career would take, I thought. But it was never, is, are you going to do music? No, I always knew I was going to do music. Yeah. And I can't imagine that being an easy thing. Has it been easy? I, I know you've had a lot of successes and you play some amazing people, but when you first decided to go that route and you went to Humber yeah. and you came out of Humber, yeah. how easy was it to be a drummer looking for work and trying to make a living doing it that? It wasn't easy at all. Um, uh, I had the support of my parents, obviously, um, and I leaned on them financially when I was in school and for a short period after. But um, I think my dad was, my dad worked hard all his life and his work ethic as a welder for Inco in Sudbury um, really, really set the tone. I knew that, you know, I had to be a man, I had to support myself, I had to, I had, so I did anything to support myself um to become a musician so any everything was geared around music uh if i needed to get a day job it had to accommodate my music career it wasn't an option it wasn't mm -hmm. like i'm gonna turn down gigs to come and work here no it was always gonna be the day job's gonna lose in favor of the music and um so there were day jobs and many times through my career you know uh even um even recently, you know, up until five years ago, I would take day jobs just because I was bored. You know, I needed a distraction. I've been thinking about being a musician for, you know, 34 years. And I had been, or, or 44 years, it's been, or, yeah. So, you know, sorry, where's my math? 38 years. Uh, so <laughs> What the hell um, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, from <clears throat> the time I was 16, I knew I wanted to be a musician. So I've taken day jobs just as a distraction, just to, I need to do something other than just think about music, you know, uh, at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but day, so day jobs were always about to facilitate me taking care of myself and taking care of my family and, and still being in the music industry. So it wasn't easy. And it was a female vocalist. I can't remember who it was. 
I was talking to somebody. I was talking to somebody in the top 40 scene in Toronto. You know, we were gigging around and she called me up and asked me um, if I was able to do it. She was a lounge singer. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Carla Charay, but uh, it was somebody like that on the lounge scene in Toronto at that time. And uh, so this would have been, you know, 19... uh, 1985 or something like that and I said to her I am going to I am not going to do any more Queen Street gigs meaning playing for the door Mm -hmm. I said I'm going to I'd rather sit at home and starve than not get paid I don't care you know I decided early on that's legit because you can get labeled as that kind of a player and then you're stuck there it takes an awful lot to get out at that time it was called the Queen Street Circuit you know, and people were playing for the door and were making, you know, nothing or sometimes paying to play there and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm not going down that road. So, and she applauded me for that. And that, that was a really determining moment for me that I was going to be a professional musician. I was going to get paid for what I was going to do. Um, but I presume a lot of people can say that, but whether it actually, yeah, and, to be well, a I did it. Game. I was just like, I would <clears throat> rather stay at home. I would turn, no, I'm not driving down there because I was living in Rexdale up by the college. That's where Humber College Music Department was at the time. Uh, Albion and Kipling, basically, you know, was where I was living. And so to drive all the way downtown to do, it was right. like ridiculous. No, I'm not going to do that. And as a drummer, what was the mentality? Would you, were, you, were you interested in joining a band and being in a band? Or was it whatever gigs that came through you? Like how, how yeah. did you set yourself up for Basically, it's been one thing that's guided me through my whole career. And it's like I'm really not that fussy about the genre as long as it's good quality. And it's with good, respectable people. You know, I couldn't play in a band with a guy who beat his wife or a guy that was a drug druggie or whatever. Right. You know, it's been, I've suffered, I think, alcoholism in, in, in bandmates, but not lightly, but I mean, I've put up with it. Right. It's, most professional musicians, I think, are functioning alcoholics, sadly, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, that's about it. I, I, uh, if, if it was good quality and they were, they were serious musicians, meaning it was, it, was all, it was about the music and the craft and I could respect them as a person, then that basically has been the guidepost for, for me as a drummer. Like, so, uh, but do you have, like, do you consider yourself one genre over another? Or, like, I mean, just based on your background, you mm-hmm. have this extensive classical, jazz, country, whatever. But, yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of drummers can say that or they find a, a genre that they feel more comfortable right. in and kind of go down that path. Right. But you seem to have many genres. Did you ever think yeah. you were one over the other? Or Again, it was purely because of my <laughs> father's work ethic. I was like, uh, I have to maximize the amount of money I can make at any given time and I'm going to limit my employment choices if I limit the genres I can play. So I... It was a concerted effort to not allow myself to be pigeonholed as one kind of drummer or another for a long time. But is that an easy thing to be? I know that there's a lot of similarities between genres, and I, mm-hmm. you could argue that there's you know country and blues and right. you know blues and jazz and whatever. But in, there's also quite a distinction between one and the other, right? right? And mm-hmm. and I don't know how easy it is to say. I can play with a jazz band, no problem. I can play with a symphony, no problem, right. or whatever. I mean, I, I presume that there's an adjustment to every different situation. Absolutely. Uh, music's a language, so um, it's there's a certain, let's say, drum beats are common to each genre. Right. Um, 
it you uh, so if you learn the drum beats in each genre then you can basically get by and then after that it becomes a matter of building a vocabulary within the genre so just as there are certain drum beats that are intrinsic to country music there are certain drum beats intrinsic to jazz music right. and just as there are certain beats there are certain fills drum fills and embellishments on the beat so the further up the tree you go away from the the trunk um, the more vocabulary you develop in each genre and so if you can picture a bunch of trees living side by side the canopies start to intermingle and you develop you develop a, a vocabulary in each genre but there are, there's a crossover time too where i can find whoa you know some of these licks that i'm some of the grooves and some of the licks i'm using in blues music they work over here too in in western swing music and not all the time but you know right, that's right. Uh, true so yes there is um, an adjustment but it's more to just developing a vocabulary in each genre and be able to speak the same language as everybody else on stage you know, so we does talked that about, make sense? Yeah, it does make okay. sense. I still think it's difficult. Well, <laughs> it, you know, you have to have command of your instrument, but at this point, at this point in my career, I better, you know, I have some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a modest guy, and I don't like to say that I can do this better than somebody else or because right. I'm better than somebody else, I'm able to do this. You will never hear that from me. But I who just, are you better than but, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm certainly better than Okay, so you talked about the, the, the day that you got hired with Mel was the right. same time you got hired by George Fox. Right. Before that, what, what, where had you gone or what kind of experiences had you gone right. to to get to okay. that point? So uh, I did the Toronto Top 40 lounge circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then while I was doing that, um, I heard about an audition for uh, the house band at this big bar in Kitchener called Lulu's. Okay. And I didn't know anything about it, but many of my friends from Humber College on other instruments were in this band and they said you need to come out and audition it was a cattle call so there were guys uh other drummers there from toronto on the lounge scene that um you know were there and there was you know i don't know 15 other drummers sitting we went so i drive to kitchener i pull into this gigantic nightclub called lulu's you know it seats uh i think i think it's sat 2200 people wow. and uh or maybe it was I know the limit of the club was 4,500 people. Hmm. You could legally fit 4,500 people in Lulu's. And uh, so I'd never seen anything like this. You know, uh, it's just a step below a circus, if you ask me. I mean, it's like, what the heck is yeah. this, you know? Um, going from playing the chicken deli, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I was doing, yeah, yeah. playing the chicken deli and stuff, to walking in there and going, wow, you know, this is gigantic. What the hell is going on here? And then I see my friends and they're like, okay, uh, you know, you do. Uh, so I do this cattle call audition and I end up getting the gig. Uh, so I moved to Kitchener. I uh, spent half my week in Toronto because I was dating my first wife. And I spent half the week and in, in, I spent the weekends in Kitchener playing. So basically house band meaning you would play Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Or? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every week. I did that for six years. And it was there that... Um, Sorry, what kind of music? Uh, we had... Okay, so the scene at Lulu's was they had two house bands. Uh, a classic rock house band called the Road House Band, which is still together. Hmm. Uh, and then they had 
our band, which was called the Cats Band. We were basically an R&B a band. We had a girl singer, an organ player, three horns, and a rhythm section, guitar, bass, and drums. And so we did top 40 music, current to the time, as well as older R&B standards. Uh, so what would happen is every night at Lulu's, there were six sets. They would hire uh, some classic rock or some well-known or semi-well-known act from the 60s, 70s, or 80s to come and headline. Uh, sometimes they would bring their band, and sometimes they weren't, wouldn't. So on a typical night, it's, we would play their six 45-minute sets. At 7 o'clock, our band would play our top 40 set. At 8 o'clock, the Rodos band would play their classic rock set. And then at 9 o'clock, the headliner would dare, do their first set. And then the whole thing would repeat. Wow. But different sets each time. Yeah, yeah. Not the same music. So there were six sets of music when you went to Lulu's, and it was really a, a cool scene. You know, it was really, now I look back on it, it was really, you know, and a great, great place to learn, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really good money. And so what would happen is um, if, if the star act, the headlining act, did not bring a band, it was our band's job to back them up. So when that happened, which happened about 60% of the time, maybe a little more, uh, we would rehearse with them Thursday afternoon. And then so we would play our own set at 7, our, our back up the headliner at 9, then our own set at 10, back up the headliner at 12. <laughs> and some of the headliners were notable, you know, Chuck Berry, uh, Mamas and Papas, The Drifters, uh, Sam and Dave, wow. uh, Sam Moore, Others not so, like, uh, you know, the Shy Lights and the, the Chiffons and the Dixie Cups and the Marvelettes, you know, a lot of the doo-wop bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them were just downright obscure. But the bottom bottom line was it was a wide variety, and that was my first taste of getting away from, you know, I'd spent my bulk of my teenage years learning how to play jazz, and then I went to Humber College where it was mostly jazz. And then I get out of Humber College and, and do a little bit of the chicken wing circuit in Toronto and and then end up playing in this top 40 band that has to also play like some of the mamas and papas, like right. with the mamas and papas, you know, <laughs> with like with Papa John, you know, there's yeah. there's John Phillips, that's the guy, you know, and and... So that was cool. Like, that was my first experience with that. Then, so I did that for six years. The gig ended. I was married. I just bought a house two years previous, and now my regular source of income is gone. Um, So I took a gig in a music store, uh, servicing band instruments, of all things. You know, going around from school to school, picking up their band repair instruments and, you know, working on the sales floor in the music store. Um, And then um, Mel Brown called me how did that happen um randall randall coriel mills drummer was uh, drumming with alana miles at the time so um leo valvasori his bass player at the time knew me um called me up and said would you like to fill in for randall he's going out with alana miles so i did that a few times I don't think Mel really liked me all that much, to be honest with you. Well, he because... told me he didn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Did he tell you that? <laughs> That's not true. So, <laughs> so uh, but why did you say that? Like, what? <laughs> no, honestly, I don't think he did because he was while like they were searching. Mel was very specific about what he liked and what he didn't like in yeah, all yeah, of his, yeah. you know, all of his bandmates. 
Uh, so drums were no different. And I don't think, I think there were some things about my playing he didn't really like because he was still calling other people, uh, trying to find just the right fit. Right. And then uh, after a few times of subbing in with him, either he just gave up and <laughs> said, yeah, okay, I can settle for this guy over here. Uh, no, uh, so I think after a while, and uh, he was a difficult guy to read on stage. You never really, yeah. you never really knew. You know, he was intimidating and all the things you've heard about Mel Brown. You know, he's this big, tall, intimidating guy and he'd give you the look every now and then or shake his head and then, you know, it wasn't that we were terrified when we were on stage with him, but we weren't exactly comfortable all the time either, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're always watching him to see what, what was the good reaction, you know, what was the bad reaction. And then I would learn these fence posts. Okay, uh, next time I'm here, I know not to do that for sure. <laughs> Well, this over here is not working either, so don't do that. But he and wouldn't that, say anything. He wouldn't come to you and oh, say, Oh, no, he would never do, do that. that or... Because um, then you would clam up and he wouldn't get anything out of you. Then you'd just be afraid to play, and that's not good for anybody. Right. You know. Did you know? Did you know what, when you got called by Mel, what, what, did, that, what did you know about Mel? Nothing. Nothing. Um... You know, when you when you have a host gig in town that works every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you can't really be aware. Well, you can. It was my own fault. I mean, I just didn't make myself aware of everything else that was happening in our little town at the time. Right. You know, I was oblivious of the, any kind of scene because it was like I could never be a part of it. Uh, number one, I can never go see anything on the weekends because I'm working every weekend. Yeah, yeah. I'll never get called to do any of that because the, we had a standing rule. You could never sub out of that gig. You know, the only time I missed a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday was with a family when my brother, you know, when my brother passed. So uh, I couldn't, you can't take time off to go work with somebody else. So I was oblivious to the scene in Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, meanwhile, while I was there, this guy named Mel Brown happened to come to town and stay there and retire there. And I didn't know who he was. Um, our organ player in the Cats band, one of them, uh, Chris Dahmer said, you have to come downtown and you got to check out this guy. Um, he's Mel Brown. He's at this club called Pop the Gator. And um, I can't stand his sound. That was exactly what he said. <laughs> I can't stand the sound. I can't stand his tone. But man, can he play. Huh. And um, I since found out why Mel had the sound he did, why he had the tone he did. Uh, it was because of his bout with spinal meningitis left him deaf in one ear. So he he had to crank the treble on his guitar to hear it properly. There's so many, there's so many instruments competing um, with that, the middle range and upper mid frequencies that where the guitar lives that um, he, they would drown out what he was playing. So he boosted the treble on his guitars, all of his guitars. And he, so he had a very trebly sound and a lot of guys didn't like that. It took me some getting used to. But, that's, but it was his sound. It was his sound. You heard Absolutely. one note and that was it. Absolutely. And uh, so consequently, that was one of the things that I'm referring to when he had very specific ideas about what he needed from each bandmate. And on drums, one of them was he can't play the cymbals loud. Because now that he's turned the guitar up, the treble up on his guitar, cymbals will now compete with those frequencies. And he just changed his sound so that he could hear himself with these other frequencies, so you're not going to step on me up there, right? So I but had if to keep... he doesn't tell you... 
No, he doesn't tug. Well, that was one of the things. See, I had my symbols up high. Right. Uh, I was influenced by Steve Jordan, the, another another great black drummer <laughs> who was on Letterman, yeah. uh, the Letterman show, and he had his symbols up high and flat, just like uh, Buddy Guy had a drummer named Killer. Yeah. He used to sit really low and put his symbols up high. I was totally into that. But consequently, so now my symbols are getting up so that when Mel is standing up, they're approaching his head height, right? And they're projecting that way. And Leo said to me, um, Mel likes it when you play cymbals softly. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I dropped my cymbals and play quietly. And all of a sudden, I started getting more calls from <laughs> Mel. <laughs> you know, all you had to do was tell me. <laughs> but Communication, <laughs> I think it's kind of yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did. Mel was not a great communicator. On stage, he was, but um, not, not about things like that. Like mm-hmm. small things like where the gig was, how much it paid, <laughs> how to get to the gig, whether you were being fed or not. <laughs> We never knew any of that stuff with Mel. It was, oh, God, it was a constant battle to get him to, you know, you don't need to know that shit. <laughs> yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> at what point did you realize who you're working with? Or what? at what point did you get an appreciation for who he was and what history he brought with him? Wow. Um, it's still sinking in. Mm. That's not a word of a lie. Like, I mean... After watching your special on him, so when did you do your, your after watching your DVD, I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, T-Bone Walker, eh? Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So it's still sinking in. Uh, again, with the other movie that just came out about Mel, I learned more stuff again. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, anyways, that, you know, I didn't really know. I just knew what my job was, and that was to make him sound better. But you also became friends with him. Oh, right? yeah. Like, you made it sound like, I mean, you had a very close friendship with him by the, by the end. As close as it could be with him. Yeah, yeah but you absolutely. were out there golfing with him. Yeah, yeah, right. twice a week and, yeah, hanging out. But you couldn't ever ask him anything to do with music, you know. Uh, I didn't I think he wanted to talk about right it. Right away. Hmm? He didn't really want to talk about no, it. No, he didn't. No, just No, and the minute you started asking him questions... He would. He turned to me one time and he goes, "Is this an interview?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm not gonna go there ever again." I guess you know. <laughs> hey, Mel, I heard this. Is this an interview? No, I'm just <laughs> talking. <laughs> so we talked about golf. Um, he loved his golf. Yeah, and uh, so we'd. Uh, I call him up every Thursday. You know, golf tournaments televised Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. right? So every Thursday, I call him up. Okay, who's going to win this week? Um, you know, I was on the phone with him when nine eleven was happening. Really? We, yeah, we. You know, I was. We were watched the first tower fall. You know, together. It was just amazing. You know, I'll never forget that. It was the first guy I thought of because it was like he's an American. He's, the only American I knew at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. I miss my phone calls with Mel. Yeah. Yeah. Like he would call and it would just be yeah. so weird that he would be calling me and then he would play something for me. And that yeah. was even, you know, he'd say, listen to this. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be sitting there listening and thinking, this is so strange. Yeah. I miss Mel a lot. Well, you said that he had that wonderful cadence to his voice. That's your quote, right? I mean, you have been, you have said that, I think. And that's exactly right. When you said that. I remember going, yeah, Macro, that's exactly right. It was the cadence of his voice. He had that that cadence. Mm. Of the, and, and of all things, a drummer can relate to cadence, you know. And, yeah, 
he, um, you know, I would leave a Mel Brown gig uh, at night, and so it's, you know, 2.30 in the morning, and you're driving home from somewhere, and it's not, I never listen to the radio on the way home from gigs. I just give my ears a rest. <clears throat> and I'd be... I'd be kind of in a, you know, that semi kind of trance state when you're driving and it's late at night and you don't have to worry too much about the traffic around you because there isn't any. It's dark. And I'd be playing these drum solos I'd, in my head. You know, these amazing drum solos. I'd be hearing these great fills and all this stuff, you know. And, I'm, and then I'd realize all I've done is I'm taking Mel Brown guitar solos and I'm putting them on the drum set. It's all his phrasing. Hmm. It's all his, it's the rhythm. Drummers hear music and rhythm primarily. Right. So when you, when, you, when I listen to rap music, it's not the words I'm hearing, but it's the cool phrasing that the singer is coming up with, you know, right. over top. So I'm, I see drummers see rhythms as they'd be written on the page. So I'm, I'm looking at phrasing and rhythms and groupings of rhythms and, and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, and so that's what I was doing. I was playing these drum solos weren't mine. They were just Mel Brown guitar solos on the drums. No wonder they sounded so good, you know. So that's how big of an influence he was on me. Well, I, <laughs> speaking of drum solos, there's a song called Summer Magic. Mm -hmm. And you do these drum fills at the end yeah. of the tune. And it was, I think, the, probably the closing or second last song from every show. Right. But that, was, that used to be my favorite part of the show. Because <laughs> you would just, there's something about... What you do, and it was different every single time, but it was, to me... Just... That's the jazz influence, and, and Mel let me do that that way. Yeah. You know, that's, um, that was a hard thing to get used to, because like I said, at now when I'm playing with Mel, I'm also touring with groups like the Wilkinsons and uh, Aaron Lines, you know, Jamie Warren, whatever. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm touring with these guys, and I'm... There's a totally, totally different dynamic in the band with Mel as there is with anybody else. Right. And Mel encouraged individuality. He said to me once, you know what I like about you? I like, I like how you hear a song and then instantly you start to fuck with it. <laughs> no, he dug it. He liked, he liked the fact that I used to mess with it because it, I couldn't just leave it alone. Right. And I think, you know, just listen to his version, how he directed us through Hey Joe. You know, it, it was nothing like Jimi Hendrix played with mm -hmm. it, and we bring it through all sorts of different genres, right? And so I think that's what he likes. And to me, that's the true spirit. If Stevie Ray Vaughan was alive today, you can bet your ass he wouldn't be playing Pride and Joy the mm -hmm. same way as it was last recorded. Right. I mean, in some ways, that's the, the shame of when these guys die is people take this audio snapshot of them and go, okay, that's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, if he had lived, it wouldn't be that at all anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you're missing the whole spirit of the whole thing. Like that would have been his version of Pride and Joy today would be so far removed from the original that you maybe it might not even be recognizable. You know, maybe no, I'm, sure. that might be an extreme, but I'm just saying, you know, they wouldn't stop dicking with it. Right. They'd always be finding a different way to say the same thing. Yeah. And that's what Mel encouraged from all of us. Whereas in the country scene, no, it's got nothing to do with you, actually. So <laughs> shut up, play your part and do your role. And that's it. It's about it's about me. Right. You know, it's not about the drums. 
right? Me, I mean the star. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that's it's a very selfish. It's a whole other dynamic, a whole other thing, right? It's very um, so my country. I I got a. I, I've always been a bit disenfranchised with the whole country scene. It's been a good money income thing for me. And it's exciting to experience doing those gigs on that scale, you know, playing the big festival and Craven um, or Camrose, you know, for, you know, 6,000 or 10,000 people or something on a summer day and the huge stage and right. the big production and stuff. And it's fun for that. But, um, I kept trying to bring the Mel Brown and the Homewreckers dynamic to the country band I was in, saying, you know, how come I can never get the same sort of atmosphere right. that's fertile ground for musical exploration and expression? It was never, that's never meant to be. And the moment that I reconciled my brain around that, I was like, okay, it's much easier to play country now. I know my job. I was confused there for a while when Mel was alive because this is so good right. over here. I just want this to be, man, wouldn't it be great if I could make some good money and have that feeling here, you right. know? But it could never be. Interesting. Um, one thing that <clears throat> many people might not know is that this year, in the year 2016, you received the Mel Brown right. Award yeah, from very Kissing flattering. Blues Festival. Tell me what that was about. I mean, well, tell me what that meant to you. Well, it meant a lot to me. You know, <clears> it's, it's overwhelming. I couldn't speak when I received it. You know, um, yeah, it's just got his name honored. And uh, I don't know what it is <laughs> lately. These uh, last few years, a lot of really good things have been happening to me. You know, I'm 54. I've been playing professionally for 34 years this year. And just this past two years, there's a lot of really cool things have been happening to me. So I'm very grateful. Pretty overwhelming, you know. Can you name something? You got some endorsements? Yeah, I got the endorsements. Are, the endorsements are cool. Not not from the, the free swag stuff. It's not really about that. I got it just to be... It's all about, for me, like my dad's work ethic again, it's about what can I do to attract more work? What can I do to keep working to support myself and my family, right? right. And so... It's all about connections and getting your name, you know, in this instance, getting my name associated with world-class products. And uh, Sonar uh, drums and Zildjian cymbals and Remo drum heads are world-known. They've been, they've been around forever and arguably the best at what they do in the world. And right. the fact that they're willing to let me like give me stuff so that I can, my name is associated with their company, does nothing but provide credibility for me. How does that work? Is that something you, see, if you don't mind talking about it, no. is that something you seek and go, hey, Sonar, I use the drums? <laughs> or, or do they come to you and say, hey, you use our drums, would you yeah, be it's, interested? It's, it's both. It's a bit of both. Um, I knew the gentleman that works in Canada for Sonar is uh, was a fan of Mel's and the band, so he was a fan of mine, and he liked Howard. He likes my shuffle groove, you know, uh, and uh, so he he um, looked at how could he improve business for Sonar in Canada, and he was like, "Well, I can sign some artists and get them out there promoting our product." And so I was one of the artists that came to mind for him. Hmm. So that's how that worked, and then. 
after that, it snowballs because once one major company takes you on, the others will consider you much more easily. They'll consider you for theirs. So I did approach Zildjian, and um, I filled out I filled out their online thing, which they make very difficult because they try to screen out just you know weekend or weekend warrior yeah, yeah, types. Sure. Um, and as soon as um, Sonar was on there, then they instant credibility. And now and once you have Zelgen and Sonar, then Remo is, you know, it's like it's nice. So, but does that, when you say promote, I know you do drum clinics and I presume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just started with that. Yeah, but I mean, I presume that's part of the promotion thing that you might talk about, the, the symbols you use or the drum heads you use or whatever. But is there more to it than that? Like, I mean, what, what else do you do to promote the fact that you use Sonar drums? Um, I will have to tell them of this interview. Okay. And I will have to. I had to mention Zildjian while we were here. Oh, that's, really? Yeah, it's in the contract. <laughs> so that's why you're wearing the Zildjian sonar hat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's a great thing. Now I don't know if you get everything free or you get a discount, but it must be neat to to grow up using this these instruments or yeah. whatever, and then kind of have your name associated. Yeah, with that. absolutely, it is. Yeah, it's a trip. It's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah, like I said, it just provides. So for me, I, if I could take it one step further, if somebody out there wanted to hire Jim Boudreau and didn't really know who I was, the fact that they see my name associated with Mel Brown in right. the award and being in the home records and Electrify Records and Remo and Sonar, all these things are starting to check off credibility right. notches on their belt. And then they, go, they can safely hire this guy because I don't know who he is. Uh, I may not have heard him play, but he's been recommended mm-hmm. and he's the real deal. So I can safely, and that's my whole goal in life. Again, my dad's work ethic called me up. Job's going to get done right. right. Bottom line, your worries about your drum, the drum chair are now over. You called me. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Go on to the next thing to worry. You got lots of things to worry about. And that's my role is to support you. And you're hiring me, so don't worry about the drums anymore. I got this covered. Go. And the fact that you're wearing a jumpsuit with all these logos on it, <laughs> should I be concerned about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but that's, yeah, yeah what, what's happening sticks, with the sticks? Uh, sticks, a Canadian company called Headhunters. Oh, okay. They're fantastic. They're really cool. They're getting well-known. They just signed Jim Keltner. Oh, right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, nice company. Yeah. Do you have drummers that you follow or that you... I mean, there's so many great drummers out there, but is there anybody out there that you just... Yeah, Steve Gadd. Oh, yeah, okay. Good choice. I mean, because... And that that was that goes back to my days in Sudbury when I was uh, just learning about all these different kinds of music. You know, um, I would go to the music store, A&A Records, and, 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 and in the shopping mall, you know, just go to a shopping mall. There's a record store in the shopping mall, and that's where I hung out, and that's where I spent my spare money. Mm-hmm. And I'd go in there, and I'd go to the jazz section, and I'd just literally... It was t- I, uh, there was no internet, so you couldn't, you know, it was all word of mouth, and it was just like, this album looks cool. <laughs> I think I it's going to sound good. Yeah, right, exactly. So this album looks cool, and you bring it home, and you put it on, and yes, it is, or no, it isn't, yeah, right? Yeah. But so if yes, it is, then the next time I'm there, I'll go right back to that section, I'll try another one of theirs. And then, so what was happening was, I started buying Earth, Wind, and Rec- Fire Records, and Ella Fitzgerald, and... George Benson and Algero and all these things, right? They all started, I'm noticing, wow, 
these are all black guys. And two, Steve Gadd is on half the records. <laughs> I don't know who the hell is a Steve Gadd guy. I got a, you know, wow. Yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, that's how it, that's how it, that's how uh, I came to appreciate Steve Gadd and Harvey Mason. And um, for some reason, Briefcase Full of Blues by the Blues Brothers with Steve Norton on drums was really an influential album for me. It, I don't know, it just stuck with me. Um, I think to a lot of people. You know, yeah, there's a certain age group that, yeah. that, that the Blues Brothers really, really affected. Yeah, it was an icon- iconic uh, yeah. band, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, so, anyways, um, that's how those are the drummers I follow, and that's why. I basically taught myself how to play the drum set because I went from playing members symphonic music to jazz music. So I didn't play a drum set before. Now I got to learn how to play a drum set. So right. I had to buy a first drum set. And then I, I'm like, well, how do I play these things? And so I set up, I had a Lloyd stereo. Remember the Lloyd stereo? It had, yes. it had the head with the <laughs> eight track and yep, the radio yep, yep. with the turntable on top, right? And so the two little speakers and uh, I set them up behind me and I uh, turned it up to 10 and I just played, I bought George Benson's Weekend in LA Great and album. I love that record. And I played it, and that's how I learned how to play drums, to Harvey Mason drumming with George Benson weekend in L.A. in my basement. And I'd fill the house with noise, and my mom would be like, hey, I haven't heard you down there practicing in a couple of days. You better get down there and practice. So, Wow. So the other thing that's interesting is you started off wanting to, be, to play with the symphony. Right. And now... In some of your gigs, you're playing with symphonies. Yeah, that's full circle, eh? Yeah. 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 So I tour with Jim Witter, and he has a number of uh, different uh, nostalgia shows. So basically, Jim's a very charismatic guy, and he's funny, and um, so he does a lot of talking during his concerts. You know, he's like Jan Arden. He get, mm-hmm. He's an entertainer, right? So, so he has a number of different shows about growing up in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, it's multimedia. There's a big screen. There's trivia going on about the times, um, interesting facts, you know, pictures of toys, some commercials that are on TV at the time running in the background while we're playing. And uh, it's all different music. So he has one called The Piano Man. So that's Billy Joel and Elton John. And he talks about, you know, his high school dance, dancing to just the way you are for the first time, you know, asking his girl, this girl across the gymnasium to dance. And so there's these funny anecdotes and stuff like that. And he has six different shows like this with different talking spiels in between. Uh, One's a coffee house show with James Taylor, Cat Stevens, Harry Chapin. Then there's um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel show. And all of these shows are orchestrated by our amazing bass player, Ian Tanner, He's a genius, this guy. He orchestrated all these songs for symphony orchestra, wrote every part for every member wow. of the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. wow, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I played drums. I'm the drummer. And Ian, so Ian, like, does this, right? And so when, when, I'm learning a lot about the whole symphony side of things, like the business side of it and stuff, and the, how the conductors move around just as much as we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we so it's about getting the conductors on your side. So like this one conductor, Bob Bernhardt, um, he's fantastic, Maestro Bernhardt. He's a great guy, and he loves us. 
and he just likes hanging with us and we're really eager, easy to work with when we do our rehearsals they take half the amount of time so the symphonies love us because there's no we're done rehearsal by the time their breaks yeah. are supposed to happen right so they love it they get paid for the whole rehearsal and only have to play for half <laughs> right um so anyways we're easy to work with and he likes it so where, wherever he goes if he gets a gig with the Detroit Symphony he'll tell them you know they'll be like so who should we get for our pop series this year it's like Jim Witter what shows does he have well he's got six different shows which one do you want you know and so that's what happens and we end up he ends up getting his gigs all over the place wow. from next year's with Detroit for the first time four nights with the Detroit Symphony and uh um, we just got that because we did four nights with Grand Rapids Symphony with him and two weeks before that we were in Edmonton with him and he also does uh, Phoenix and he's had us down to this uh, university um, in uh, in Tennessee Cleveland, Tennessee this Christian college that he teaches at um, had us there to do the uh, Simon at Garfunkel show and um, so yeah it has come full circle I'm actually sitting up in front of the you know, in, in front of the orchestra, usually with a big aquarium around me because I'm too loud for all those sensitive ears. <laughs> and it's no, pretty I mean, amazing, though, right? Like, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to be on stage with a symphony. Yeah. And the power of a symphony yeah. is just unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's, um, yeah, it is pretty cool. Absolutely. It's a rush. I'm just, I'm just starting to get used to doing it right now because there's a huge time delay between us and them hmm. not only do classical musicians feel time differently than pop orchestras do not all classical symphonies get playing pop music there's a lot of animosity sometimes they feel it's below them mm -hmm. they don't like doing it all of those barriers need to be broken down a few symphony orchestras do get it the Edmonton Symphony gets it. The Grand Rapids Symphony totally gets it. There was a there was one in York, Pennsylvania. They really they get it, but there are others that don't, and it's uh, can be a little. There can be a little bit of animosity yeah. there, but for the most part, the ones that we work with, they get it. That's why we continue to work with them. Everywhere I go with Jim, we, we, like it's my first time, but I'm finding out it's the band's like fourth or fifth time being there. They just keep. Everywhere we go, we get hired back. Right. And that's the secret to, again, speaks to my work ethic and my father's work ethic. It's like, just do the job, do it right, you'll get a call back. And we do. And so uh, that's a great band. The Jim Waiter Band is a good music, great guys. And uh, you're working steady. And we're working steady. I wanted to ask you, I don't know, if you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to, but no, a few years ago, you, were, you got sick. Yeah, the cancer, yeah. yeah. How did that change your life? Uh, changed everything about my life. Um, it was rectal cancer, so uh, I had to be patient with my recovery um, and not get hard on myself. Uh, the chemo and the radiation, I, I had the best possible experience that you could have. I should be a freaking poster boy for um, chemo and radiation, like everything... Uh, um, I didn't have, ad I had very little adverse reaction to anything. I didn't have any pain ever. Wow. Um, it took about uh, four years for everything to get back to normal. Did you uh, play during this you know time? What I mean? hmm? Did you play during that time? The whole time. Yeah. Uh, the only, I, I, I played right through all of my chemo and my radiation. I had, um, they gave me the option of having chemo, um, 
inter- like a, having a splint in my arm or having a portacath installed in my chest, which required another surgery. But I, went, I opted for that because I could then run the tube, um, you know, under my shirt and nobody would know that I was on chemo. Right. It was carried in a little uh, sack. It was in a, like a baby bottle in a, in a harness on my belt. And I had this slow, constant drip of chemotherapy. And every week I went in and they flushed the portacath out and get rid of any clotting and, and filled up the bottle again. And I went. So 24-7 for six weeks, I, had, I was receiving chemo. Uh, and uh, so I played right up until my surgery. And then I was off for two months and then I started playing again. It must have been scary, though. It's been a oh, very frightening yeah, thing. it was crazy. Yeah, there's a. It's the mental side of it that's that's more that's harder than than the physical side. Although you don't, you know, but you gotta, you can't beat yourself up. I mean, think about what you've been through. Think about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It takes time to heal. It's scar tissue down there, so you can't feel anything for a while, right? In fact, it takes like uh, you you heal ninety percent of the way uh, within six months. But the last 10% takes like four or five years. There's still nerve endings reattaching right now, like six years later. But aside from that, it's the mental yeah. side of it that's, that's hard to deal with. They, you go through a bunch of things, you're angry, um, and you know it affects everything. It affects... Uh, Where do you um, think the anger comes from? Is that normal? Uh, I talked to somebody about that actually. I was golfing and, and uh, I picked up a round with this guy. Turns out he's a he's a psychologist that works family therapy. And so I said to him, "Hey man, this is the scoop. Why am I angry? Mm-hmm. You know, and we were on like hole eleven or something, and there was a lull. You know, we we're waiting for the next group or whatever." Did he say it was because you're putting? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, "Yeah, man, if I putted like you, <laughs> I'd be furious." And he goes, uh, okay, so you have kids. And I go, yeah. And he goes, your kids ever run out into traffic? And I'm going, yeah, she ran away from me in the parking lot one time. Nothing happened, but it scared the shit out of me. He said, what did you do? I go, I yelled at her. And he goes, exactly. Like, anger is the result of extreme fear. It's the brain's way of coping with being so scared that you get angry. And that's... He said, that's what, we don't really know what it is, but it's almost like the accumulation of all possible emotions and it comes out as anger. And that's basically said, you've been, you know, you had a brush with death. No wonder you're scared. You know, you're angry because you were scared so bad. Why me? You know, and then also there's people dying from it every day. How come I lived? That's Mm -hmm. another thing. But I think that the hardest thing to wrap my head around is not how do you deal with the fear of it coming back? Because you find things out, um, whether you want to or not, you find things out. Like if this typically, this is what's called a secondary uh, cancer or whatever. I don't really know what that means, but uh, it's been described as if you have had this kind of cancer and it comes back, it typically comes back as this kind of cancer over here. This kind of cancer over here is way worse than what I had. Mm. Uh, rectal cancer is a slow-moving cancer, um, and it's curable if you catch it in time. I was very lucky. I had late stage three, almost stage four. It didn't metastasize for some reason. We don't know why. I caught it just in time. Again, I had the best possible reaction. Right. right? I mean, we caught it just in time. 
that kind of cancer is very curable. But if it comes back, it comes back as lung or kidney cancer, which is way worse. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other ball game, and it's treated a whole other, much more aggressive way. And um, so you worry about it, whether it's going to be able to come back. What did you? What do you think you learned about yourself through this whole ordeal? I'm sitting here right now, not crying about it. So I'm really surprising myself right now, actually. So I just learned that I'm dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is proving to me that I'm dealing with it right now. Um, I was really teary for a long time about everything, about Mel, about everything. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was, just, and it's frustrating. Again, I had to stop beating myself up because I'm just like, what are you crying all the time for? And this is I just thought it was all a guy part thing, of the thing. No, you just reach a certain age, <laughs> yeah. and you start crying. That's not yeah, it. yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, so yeah, I learned. Uh, I learned not to be so hard on myself, which is a really hard thing to do because it's a fine line between driving yourself, being self, and you have to be self-motivated in my business. If I don't sell myself, which I hate having to do, if I don't sell myself to other people and tell people what I'm capable of and what my abilities are so that they consider to use me, if they they can consider to use me, Mm -hmm. if I don't do that, then I'm not going to work, you know? Uh, and so you have to be self-motivated and you have to drive yourself hard. But now somebody's telling me I have to give myself a break and don't be so hard on yourself. That's a fine line. Yeah. How do you stay self-motivated and driven so that you can provide for yourself and your family and yet not be hard on yourself? You know, how can you push yourself, but not too hard? (laughs) Yeah. So you're working quite a bit now. Yeah. And you got a lot of regular gigs and things are going well. Yeah. You know, I mentioned that I didn't want to get pigeonholed and I tried to, I didn't want people to look at me and go, Jim Boudreau is a country drummer right. or Jim Boudreau is a blues drummer because there's limitations to every genre and people are going to look at you. Some country guys will go, he's a blues guy. What do you want to hire him for? Right. And some blues guys are going to go, I just saw him playing jazz downtown. He's not a blues guy, is he? Yeah, you know, yeah. so you don't want to be pigeonholed, right? And, um, but despite my best efforts, I do find that certain avenues that have opened up for me are finding or being in the same genre, right? Um, so it was like country and it was blues. Because of my affiliation with Mel, all those records I did for Electrify with Snooky Pryor and Sam Myers and Dave, little Dave Thompson, and that, that was all because of Mel, mm-hmm. you know? So there's a whole whack of blues work there that just came my way. Of course, I'm going to do it. And there was a whole bunch of country work that came my way because I, you know, so-and-so saw me with George Fox, so they hire you. And then so-and-so sees you with George Fox and Aaron Lyons, so they hire you. And, and that, so that fed amongst itself. So I got these two cauldrons brewing here. Um, but I felt that there were um, definite musical languages I didn't speak yet. And one of them is just the classic rock drummer i didn't listen to it when i was a teenager because it was into symphony music and then i went into jazz and like r&b right so i skipped the whole classic rock scene that's so weird yeah it is for a canadian boy (laughs) in northern ontario absolutely it's weird man you know i should know every trooper and rush and led zeppelin (laughs) song there is right but i i don't and so when the opportunity came up to work with jim witter i i jumped at it 
you know, his bass player and his sax player both recommended me for the gig. And so he called me up and offered me the gig without an audition. He just said, if it's my guys are telling me you're the man, so you're the man. You want the gig? I'm like, yes, I want the gig. And he's like, okay, you need to learn <laughs> these 130 <laughs> songs. I'm not joking. <laughs> it was like 130 yeah, songs. Yeah, six shows, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, plus a bunch of these. There's this, there's this shtick that he does with uh, television commercials from the 70s where... <laughs> Uh, he, he, where we do this thing where the audience calls out television themes from the 70s and we play them. Huh. So I had to learn like a bunch of them because it's not scripted. I mean, no. anybody can call anything, right? So, you know, I'm learning the MASH theme on drums and I'm learning, you know, uh, Welcome Back Cotter and the Partridge Family <laughs> and uh, the Monkees and, you know, all of that. And uh, so I've got 130 songs to all in a genre I'm not familiar. I've never played before, right? Uh, so that's good. I, I knew that once I learned these 130 songs and I spent a few years playing with them in gym, it's going to be another language I'm going to be able to speak. Yeah, so that's why I did it. Was, it was purely, it, not, not just from, these are great guys and they're fun to be around. And he's a great band leader, the best band leader I've ever worked for. You know, barring nobody. I mean, Mel was a great musician, but he wasn't a great band leader. And he'd be the first to tell you that. Mm -hmm. But this guy is a great band leader. And and I really, I really uh, enjoy playing with all of them. But so that's not, the, I took it because of that. But, all, but really it was about learning to play drums better and expand my musical vocabulary on my instrument. This was, this would, at the end of it, when somebody just said, what would you play to this and give me a blank slate? There's a certain element to my playing that's been missing, and that's classic rock. So I know that once I learn to speak that language, that will influence my next performance on a blank slate, mm -hmm. and it'll influence it in a good way, you know, hopefully. So that's why I'm doing it. Two, two, um, two memories just came into my mind when you mentioned Sam Myers. I know we have to, I have to wrap this up, but I have to share these. One was um, you were doing a song with Sam, and he just said, Blues and C. And you said, uh, Sam, is this a, a, sh a swing or a shuffle? And he said, swing shuffle. <laughs> and you said, okay. And I have this on video, so it's true. Well, it was a shuffle, swing, swing, shuffle, whatever. Yeah. He just, and he just accepted it for what it was, because I don't think he knew at that point. And then the other one was, during that session... Um, I made we, a mistake. No, no, you didn't. I don't know if you I didn't make a mistake. But I think it, I thought it was at a point where we thought that the album was done, and you started packing up your drums. Right. And then Sam came up with a few more songs. Right. And then you started to assemble your drums again yeah. in a matter of minutes right. to accommodate. And I think right. the next three songs that they recorded one after another was probably the best part of the album. I don't right. know if you remember that. Yeah, I do But it was just, a, yeah. it was like, we just thought the session was over. Yeah. And then he said, no, I got some more ideas. And then also yeah. he packed putting your drums <laughs> yeah, back yeah. together. That was, yeah. Anyway, um, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you thank so you. much for sharing this. No, thank you, Mark. Thank you. So, it's, I've, I've known you for a while, but didn't know a lot about you. And... Uh, now I do. <laughs> the honor is all mine. Thank you very much. Thank you.